0: I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, uh, to open to the book of Revelation. Uh, if you've been with us over these last weeks, you know that we are, uh, we've begun a series walking through the last book in the New Testament, the last book in, in the Bible, uh, the Revelation, and we're going to continue today picking things up in chapter 3, verse 1. number of years ago, I was at a conference in, uh, in Toronto and heard a speaker, Reggie McNeil, and uh, much of what he shared that day, as 16 years ago, still uh, I, I remember. But w- one thing that I want to share this morning was a story that he told that uh, came to my mind as I was preparing this morning. Uh, Reggie and his wife had recently, at that point, recently been on vacation in Italy and uh, as part of their vacation they were taking a train between two cities, the city of uh, Genoa and Rapallo, he said. And while they were traveling on, on the train, uh, there were other travelers around them and, and one young man a little ways down uh, in the train was asleep. And, and Reggie says he wasn't just kind of asleep, he wasn't just dozing off, he was stone cold asleep. His phone was ringing and it kept ringing and ringing and ringing. In fact, Four phone calls happened, and this young man was just asleep, dead to the world. Finally, uh, the man across the aisle from him uh, stood up and stepped across and shook that man. That young uh, man jumped, Reggie said. He jumped, and he looked around, and he realized that he had to get off. The next stop was three hours away, so had he missed it, that would have caused the problems. He, he, He just looked around, realized where he was, grabbed his bag, and ran off. Reggie said he he didn't even stop and thank the man who woke him. It was for that young man a startling experience of coming awake. This morning we come to the fifth of seven letters in the Revelation. Uh, The letter to the church in Sardis. As Gordon Fee says, reading about the church in Sardis is not happy reading. This letter, this message is aimed at waking up this church. A church that is sound asleep, A church that, according to Jesus, has a reputation for being alive, but is in fact dead. So the message is, wake up! Wake up. Remember... The revelation, literally the apocalypse, the unveiling, this final book of Scripture is is an unveiling. It is Jesus pulling back the curtains, lifting off the cover so that we can see what is really real, so that we can see what is really true. And what we recognize is that things are not, that there is more going on, then we perceive with our physical eyes that things are not as they seem. The revelation helps us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the future, but it also helps us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. What is really real? What is going on behind the veil? Because of his faith in Jesus, John, one of Jesus's twelve disciples, now in his mid 80s because of his faith in Jesus he has been deposited fire on a day turkey on the island of patmos and on the lord's day he is worshiping in the spirit and suddenly hears a voice behind him a voice like a trumpet and he turns to see the voice and there before him is the living and exalted glorified jesus the same jesus he followed and jesus commissions john he says write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches john faithfully records those messages. That's what we find here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We've already explored four letters, four messages to, to four of the seven churches. We began with the first letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Jesus had much to commend this church for. There was a lot that was good, a lot that was, was, uh, was good about their life together, but we discovered that not all was right. Jesus rebuked them because the central quality The central characteristic that was to identify them, that is to identify us as his people, love was missing. And so he calls them to repentance. In the second letter, the letter to the church in Smyrna, we heard only words of encouragement. No rebuke from Jesus to this group. This group of believers were already suffering because of their faith in Jesus, and things were about to get worse, and so Jesus speaks words to encourage them. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death. Jesus encourages them to have courage. Third, we came to the letter to the church in Pergamum. Again, Jesus commends them. They have withstood external pressure, pressure from the environment, the world around them, the city around them. They have been faithful to Jesus in the face of that. Yet, they have failed in terms of an internal threat. They have compromised when it comes to truth. And so Jesus calls them back to the truth to protect the truth, to seek the truth, to care about the truth, because the truth matters. Last Sunday we looked at the letter to the church in Thyatira, and there we saw a church that though, again, numerous things that were good about them, they had failed to care for holiness. They had allowed a false teacher in their very midst to lead people into sin, in fact, to declare in Jesus' name that it's not sin at all, to call sin righteousness, They'd failed to care about holiness. This morning we come to the fifth letter, a letter to the church in Sardis. I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to follow along. Revelation 3, verses 1-6. to To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy." The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There are four things that I want to do with you in the time that we have together this morning. Uh, First, I want to consider the story of Sardis, this city. Second, I want to uh, unpack the reality of this church. Third, I want to explore the commands Jesus gives to them. And fourth, I want to reflect with you on the implications of this letter for us today as readers of the text. So first, the story of Sardis. Sardis, in many ways, had, uh, had everything. A cherished uh, location, climate, good climate, uh, culture, economy, wealth. Uh, but perhaps most significant for our understanding of the city of Sardis, we need to understand something of its illustrious history. Of the seven uh, churches in seven cities throughout Asia Minor that are, are uh, written to here, that Jesus has messages for, uh, the c- city of Sardis, according to a New Testament Gordon Scholar, he says this, uh, Gordon Fee, he says this, uh, Sardis easily outstrips all the others in terms of its antiquity, and its well-known, illustrious history. Its history went back at least as far as uh, the history of Troy, ancient Troy, perhaps even further. In the 6th century BC, it had been one of the most powerful, uh, wealthy cities in the ancient world. In fact, prior to the rise of the Roman Empire, uh, Sardis had been the capital city of the kingdom of Lydia. You may have heard of their king Croesus, the legend of Croesus. He was incredibly wealthy, had an incredible vast amounts of gold. The city of Sardis geographically was located on a, a spur or a promontory that jutted out from the end of a mountain range. It was 1,500 feet above a, the, the fertile valley of Hermas. Uh, This valley floor. And so uh, the city was built on top of that spur, on top of that promontory. And so it was was surrounded on all sides by sheer cliffs except for uh, the one way into the city over this uh, fairly steep uh, saddle from the mountain range. And so uh, geographically this was an incredibly uh, secure place. It was the ultimate impregnable city. You only had to guard one gate. There was no other way for an army to attack it. It was 1,500 feet up with only one way in. Uh, thus, the city of Sardis was, was this great, uh, this fortress. In fact, a second century writer uh, describes, in trying to describe an impossible task, uh, wrote this. That would be like trying to take Sardis. Sardis was this impregnable fortress. However, what we also need to know is that twice... Twice in their history, Sardis fell. First in 546 B.C. to Cyrus of Persia, and then in 214 to Antiochus the Great. Both times, it fell through the negligence of its defenders. Both times, a soldier with a rope and grappling hook climbed 1,500-foot cliffs to unguarded, unwatched walls, opened the gate from inside, and armies were able to get in. Another thing we should be aware of when we think about Sardis is that in A.D. 17, Sardis was completely devastated by a massive earthquake. Forty years later, a historian uh, still references that earthquake as the greatest disaster of human history. Nonetheless, even despite the devastation that that earthquake brought, within a matter of years, Sardis was rebuilt with the assistance, with the help of of the emperor. In fact, just nine years after the earthquake, Sardis competed with ten other cities for the right to build a temple in honor of the Roman emperor. Now, Sardis did not win that competition, Smyrna did. We already uh, saw that when we looked at the letter to Smyrna. But what is interesting in, in, for, for us this morning is that whereas Smyrna, in their uh, in in their bid to build this temple, they pointed to all the ways in which they served and were useful for the emperor empire right now. Whereas Sardis's bid just pointed to their illustrious past. Look at how great we were. We should get this. Look at the awesome things we used to do. We should get this. Smyrna pointed to the present, what what they were contributing now. Sardis pointed to the past. Its past reputation. So two things for us to remember as we think about Sardis. First, that Sardis was a city with a great sense of invincibility. It felt secure and impregnable. No one could, could defeat them. Second, Sardis thought of themselves as a great city, but in reality her greatness had diminished and passed her by. She was living on her past reputation. Both of those things are Important as we turn to this letter. Let's turn to the reality of, of this church. The second thing we wanted to look at. As I've already noted, in each of the letters that we've looked at so far, uh, it begins with words of commendation. Jesus has some positive things to say, some some good things going on in their lives that Jesus affirms. And then, with the exception of the letter to Smyrna, where there is no word of correction or rebuke. Jesus, in all of them, warns them that not all is well, yet this I hold against you. And he calls each church to repentance. In Ephesus, there is a lack of love. In Pergamum, there is a lack of concern for the truth. In Thyatira, there is a lack of concern for holiness. Here, one of the things that stands out as we come to this letter in Sardis is that, uh, a letter that John Stott says is one of the most severe of the seven, is that in this letter, things are different. Jesus moves straight forward into judgment with only a passing word of commendation. It's not that there is no one in this church to commend. There are indeed a few, Jesus says. There are a few who have not soiled their clothes. But Jesus begins with, and the message is dominated by judgment, by rebuke. Their overall condition is utterly desperate in the eyes of the living Christ. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. The problem is, part of the problem is, of course, that they don't recognize this reality. They have a reputation of being alive. They they think of themselves as being alive. Michael Wilcox says, it seems that she herself is not aware of her real spiritual state. And not only in her own eyes, but in the eyes of others. From the outside, they seem to be very much alive. Everything looks good. Daryl Johnson writes this, The church in Sardis was not what the unbelieving world would call a dead church. Nor was it what the other churches of Asia Minor would call a dead church. It was a very active church. All kinds of events were taking place. All kinds of committees were meeting to discuss and plan and strategize. The church in Sardis was well organized. Doctrine was sound. Sacraments were celebrated regularly and orderly. The church in Sardis was the largest of the seven. Services were well attended. It was certainly, one of the, certainly the wealthiest, fabulously wealthy as one commentator puts it. Yet Jesus says, you have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. In the eyes of Jesus, the living and exalted Christ, the One who stands in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, the One who stands in the midst of His churches, this church is spiritually dead. There's no life. Despite appearances to the contrary. And that is a desperate desperate problem. What what makes this judgment so poignant is the fact that the judgment makes no mention of either external pressures or internal immorality and false teaching. Those are the things that we've encountered in the other letters uh, to the other churches where there's this pressure from the world outside the empire is coming down on them or there's false teaching or immorality that has crept into the church. But we get no hint of any of those things going on here. So on what basis, then, does Jesus make this this judgment upon the church of Sardis? Well, in verse 2, Jesus says, I know your deeds, and moments later He says, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. The evidence of their deadness, the lack of life, was in the fact that their deeds were unfinished, incomplete, or empty. Now what exactly does that mean? Daryl Johnson offers us a few suggestions to consider. Jesus could simply be saying that they never finish what they start, that that for all their activity, their commitment is weak and lacking, that they never follow through, that they they have great plans, great goals, but poor commitment. Some might be tempted to call this church half-hearted, superficial, content with mediocrity. You never finish anything. Or... Jesus could be saying that their deeds are not His deeds. That is, for all their busyness, they are not doing the things that Jesus has called them to do. Their activity is not oriented to Him, to His glory, to His purposes, to His kingdom. It's easy for us to be uh, busy doing all kinds of activity and lose sight of the reason we do it or the one for whom we do it. Or... Jesus could be saying that they are not doing the one great thing that they are supposed to be doing. Making Him known. Reaching out to the lost around them with the good news that is found only in Jesus. They are, after all, the golden lampstand. Johnson writes, Lampstands exist for one reason. To give light. To burn in the darkness. Not complete means not doing the one thing I've called you to do in the city. Make disciples. Or Jesus might be saying that though they are continuing to go through the motions of being the church, there is no longer any reality to what they are doing. That despite appearances, the truth is they've accommodated themselves to the world, the culture around them, and there is no substantive difference between them and those who do not name the name of Christ around them. A hint that this is at least probably partly moving in the right direction is found in verse 4 where we read that there were still some who had not soiled not yet soiled their clothes. That phrase speaks of defilement, of sin. So the fact that some have not yet soiled their clothes implies that many have. Perhaps it has happened slowly and subtly, but they have failed to heed the words of Paul in Romans, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Whatever precisely Jesus is getting at, their deeds are incomplete, unfinished. They're empty deeds. And consider this, why do you suppose that this church apparently did not face any external pressure? Perhaps because they were, in the words of George Caird, the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. The church was too innocuous to be worthy of persecuting. The Bible often speaks to the Difference between outward appearances and inward reality. The Old Testament prophets Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah regularly railed against merely going through the motions of religion without an inner spiritual reality. In Isaiah, we read these words from God These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus quotes that same text. As he speaks to the religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem, to, to those who looked alive, to those whom you ask anyone on the streets of Jerusalem, they would have said the, the spiritual leaders, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, these are the godly ones, these are the religious ones. Yet Jesus says this to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. There is no inner reality to the spiritual facade that people see. They were hypocrites. The word hypocrite was originally used in reference to an actor, someone who played a part on stage. But over time, it came to be used for anyone who was pretending. John Stott writes, Hypocrisy is make-believe. It is the let's pretend of religion. The living and exalted Christ says to this church, You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead despite appearances to the contrary. This is a dead church. There's no reality to their spiritual life, and their situation is gravely serious. Let's turn to the commands that Jesus gives. Clearly, this, this is a pretty heavy letter. Fee is right. This is not happy reading. But it does not leave us without hope. Jesus gives to the church five commands, five imperatives. And that very fact points to His amazing grace. He would not have issued these commands, these imperatives, if their death was final, if there was no hope, if there was no coming back to life again. Because of His amazing grace, it is not too late, but the church must act immediately. They must hear Him. They must respond. His first command found in verse 2, Wake up! A literal, most literal translation of the, the term there in the original would be become watchful. Pay attention. Throughout the New Testament, throughout the life of Jesus, Jesus continually calls people to watchfulness. And, and that warning, that call, that imperative, in, in light of the history of this city, the city of Sardis, is incredibly appropriate. Twice, twice they've been conquered because no one was paying attention. Because they felt secure in their fortress and soldiers were able to crawl up the cliffs with ropes and grappling hooks and open the gates and they were taken twice because of their inattention because they were sleeping one of the gravest dangers we face as followers of christ is spiritual complacency spiritual apathy The history of Sardis teaches us that we are never more in danger of falling than when we feel comfortable and safe and stop paying attention. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.12, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Daryl Johnson says, Every congregation and every individual disciple is always on the brink of losing authentic spiritual life. Why? Because authentic spiritual life, by its very nature, is entirely grounded and dependent upon a relationship with Christ. See, Christian discipleship is not something we can do. By our own efforts, by ourselves, a Christian discipleship is not simply a matter of doing certain things and not doing other things. It's, it's not about showing up for worship gatherings and, and, and singing songs or humming along, or, or it, it, that's not what discipleship is about. At its very heart, discipleship is a relationship with Christ, and you cannot do that alone. It's about an intimate, daily walk with Jesus, communion with Christ. Our vision as a church is, is that we want to be a community of men and women, young and old, who are growing deeper in intimacy with Christ. That's not just words on a sign in our building or on the bulletin when we have one. That is vital, that we be growing in intimate communion with Christ. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. We need to hear those words. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not apart from me, you can do less. Not apart from me, you just don't do it quite as well. We we cannot, we cannot live the Christian life apart from intimate fellowship and walking with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard, and every illustration breaks down, but a great illustration for, for this point is is the idea of water skiing. Many of you have water skied before. And what do you need for water skiing? You, you need a boat and you need a ski, at least one, and a rope. And you've got to hold on to that rope and the boat pulls you around. And, and you all know that if you let go of the rope, you, you know, you can go, still maybe go for a, a few more meters, but the reality is without the boat pulling you, you're, you're going to be done and down in the water, right? Like, big deal. Let go of the rope. And like, look at me, no rope. Yeah, for how long? need to hold on to the rope we need to be deeply engaged with christ be watchful wake up don't be complacent don't let complacency and apathy creep into your spiritual life second jesus commands them to strengthen what remains and is about to die what is it that jesus is referring to here well probably some of the forms of their christian life this church was clearly still gathering for worship That's not a bad thing. They were perhaps doing some other things, having times of prayer, maybe reading the Word. Jesus is not against forms. In fact, He's against dead forms. He's against these things if we're simply going through the motions. But I believe He's calling them not to stop doing those things, but to strengthen them. That is to ensure... That those forms that they are engaged in are in fact doing what they are intended to do. That they are leading us to Him. That they are moving in our hearts, transforming our hearts, that we would love Him more and follow Him. They are shaping us to be women and men, young and old, who look like Him. And He's calling them to think carefully about the things that they are doing. That those things do what they are intended to do. To ensure that they are not simply going through the motions that they're not playing the role of a follower of Jesus, but they're actually following Jesus, growing to love Him, growing the reality of that relationship. Darrell Johnson writes this, and this is challenging, and we can maybe think about this. But he says, I think it would be healthy for every congregation to periodically, say every five years, declare that all programs and activities stop and only be started again if it can be demonstrated that they are in fact accomplishing their biblical purpose. Perhaps we ought to do the same with our own personal lives. Periodically stop everything and only start up that which keeps us in relationship with Jesus and fulfills His purpose for us. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Third, Jesus commands them to remember. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. What did they hear? What did they receive? They heard the good news. The good news that through faith in Christ... We are made alive. Through faith in Christ, we are forgiven. Through faith in Christ, we are washed and purified and declared holy. Through faith in Christ, we are clothed with the perfection of Jesus. The Father looks at us and sees not our performance for Him, but Christ's performance on our behalf. That through faith in Christ, we are made new. That's what they heard. And what did they receive? They received God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Jesus wants the believers in Sardis to remember that they have received God's very Spirit that gives life. Paul writes, For I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. God's Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, Almighty God, the same Spirit, Paul writes in Ephesians, that brought Jesus back to life indwells us as His people. As in each of the letters, the description of Christ that we encounter Is of great significance. And here, in this case, in this letter, verse 1, Jesus is identified, he identifies himself as the one who holds the seven spirits of God. You may recall that from Revelation chapter 1. And I said there, and I'll remind you, this isn't saying Jesus has or God has seven spirits. In chapter 1, it's pretty clear that it's a, a reference to God's triune nature Father, Spirit, Son. Here, again, seven spirits is simply speaking of the Holy Spirit. The revelation uses engages our imaginations, uses all kinds of imagery and symbols, and uses numbers that way. And seven was the number of completion, the number of fulfillment. So when he speaks of the seven spirits of God, this isn't saying God has seven Holy Spirits. This is saying the, the fullness, the completeness of the ministry of God's Spirit. What have you received we receive the Spirit, the Spirit of the living God who, who indwells us, who, who gives us life. The Bible is clear that when we put our faith in Jesus, the Spirit comes and fills us. The Spirit indwells in us. Paul says in Romans, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. You cannot be a Christian and not have the Spirit. It doesn't mean we, we always are recognize the Spirit's presence or power within us. But the truth is, when we come to Christ, we receive the Spirit. As those who are in Christ, the Spirit of the living God lives in us. We are the place where God is present in this world. Remember what you have received and what you have heard. Fourth, Jesus commands them to hold fast. Keep it. We are to cling to the Spirit. We are to hold on to the rope. We are to... Remain connected with the vine. Do not let go of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit because to do so is to let go of life. Now what is abundantly clear at this point is that the Christian life is not simply a matter of saying a prayer at some point in time, crossing a line, identifying yourself as a Christian, and then just coasting. Jesus says, hold on. Hold on, we need to continually, daily open ourselves up to the filling of the Spirit, for the the guidance of the Spirit, for the power of the Spirit. Keep on being filled with the Spirit, Paul writes in Ephesians. The Christian life is life in the Spirit, life in step with the Spirit. We are to keep in step, to be attentive to the Spirit of God, to obey the Spirit. And fifth, the fifth command is is simply repent. Repent. Stop and turn around. If you don't, you will remain dead. Despite the trappings of the spiritual life that might be visible from the outside, even from your own perception, he says to the believers at Sardis, despite the appearance of being Christians, despite the appearance of being a church that is very much alive, you're dead and apart from turning around, you will remain dead. We need the life-giving Spirit. It is the Spirit that gives us life. Let me ask, let's reflect together on the implications of this letter for our lives this morning. There's no way around the fact that this is an uncomfortable text. We face the uncomfortable reality that in this passage Jesus is speaking to a church he's speaking to men and women in a church and he says that with some exceptions they are dead and though they have the reputation of being spiritually alive they are in fact dead and and, and that is a sobering thing to read it is a sobering thing for me to declare it is a sobering weighty thing for you to hear V he is right, this is not happy reading. But it is what the Word of God says. It is what Jesus says. It is possible to be a part of the church. It is possible to look spiritually alive, and yet that not be the reality. Now, theologically, we might wonder, what are we supposed to do with this? Here's how Craig Keener describes it or writes about it. He says, Arminians teach that apostasy, that is, that you can walk away from faith, can reverse the results of conversion. Historic Calvinists teach that people who fail to persevere were never converted to begin with. Okay, So two theological schools, one that says you can lose your faith, one that says if you fall away, you never were genuinely saved. What is most important is that both agree on the end result. Those who do not persevere are lost. It's always interesting when two opposing views or schools of thought, agree on something. There are two dangers that, that we face, two dangers that are highlighted for us by Jesus in this passage of Scripture. There is a danger that we become spiritually complacent, that we become apathetic, spiritually speaking, that we fail to be vigilant in our life with Jesus. That's what happened in Sardis. And there is a second danger that we would live in the present on the basis of past experiences. That we would look to past experiences rather than present realities when we think about our walk with Jesus. And that's what happened with the church in Sardis. Are you and I seeking Jesus? Seeking to grow in Him? Seeking to to walk in communion with Christ? Are we living with a desire and an attempt to be attentive to His Spirit daily? Listening for His voice. Leaning into His empowerment. Uh, Is our love for Jesus growing? Is is His death for us becoming sweeter and sweeter? Do we marvel at it? Are our hearts moved to worship and to praise Him because we recognize more and more and more the truth that He is our only hope And that only He will satisfy us. And that there is nothing that we desire above Him. Are we moving in that direction? Or are we simply going through the motions, looking alive but with no reality to it? If I were to ask you to tell me about your relationship with Christ, what's Jesus teaching you in this season? Where is He at work in you, convicting you of things and bringing about transformation? How is He leading you to serve His kingdom purposes? Tell me about how your love for Him is deepening and growing. Would you, would I, have to look to years long ago to to answer those questions? Or would you be able to respond out of the present reality of your walk with Jesus? This isn't about earning something. This is about what is really real. What's, what's really going on? And the promise of Jesus is, is that to those who are victorious, to those who heed, heed His warning, those who wake up, those who remember what they heard and what they received, those who repent, who stop and turn back to Jesus, that Jesus, they will walk with Jesus dressed in white, and that He will never blot their names out of His book of life. Interesting. A side bit that in cities of this day, in cities like Sardis, if ever there was a citizen uh, who was sentenced to death, these cities all would have had city rosters, these rosters listing the name of every citizen. And before a person would be put to death on those occasions when that happened, they would, before execution, they would blot that person's name out of the roster. Jesus says, I will never. Blot your name out of my book of life. To be sure, this is a sobering text, a sobering letter. John Stott, as I said, calls it the most severe of the letters. But it need not leave us discouraged or fearful. Jesus comes to this church and He calls to them. He warns them. He rebukes them because He loves them because He is full of grace. And He calls them back into real, intimate communion with Him. He calls them to wake up because His love for them, because His grace is abundant, because it's not too late. None of this is about us somehow securing our standing with God, our position with Christ, by our own performance for Christ. It really isn't. But we need to let this warning rest on us with all of its weight. This is calling us to deep, real, intimate communion with Christ. Christ who is full of love for us. Christ who is full of grace. Christ whose Spirit makes us alive. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. Amen.